0: You know all of the questions that you have about cancer that you're afraid to ask because you think they make you sound dumb? Like, if I stand in front of the microwave, am I likely to get cancer? Well, I asked those questions today to somebody who knows the answers. Dr. Joe Zundel comes on the Active Life podcast. He works in a wet lab studying all of the things that we want to know about cancer and way more that we don't want to know about cancer. We're just happy that he's doing the work so that we can get the benefit. When you listen to today's podcast, I want you to take the information that you're learning from Dr. Joe and understand that he is doing the best job that he can to give us simple answers to questions that are very complex that have a lot of nuance to them. I asked him specifically to be as simple and ground level as he possibly can. And I think he did a great job. I think you're going to find value from it. When you listen to the podcast and you like it, do me a few little favors, please. Go thank Dr. Joe. He took a bunch of time out of his day. He's got nothing to sell. He's got no opportunity to grow a business from this. He just genuinely wants to be helpful. So head to his Instagram account. Thank him. Tell him it was helpful. Give him a follow. Give us that five-star rating. Write us a review. Share it with a friend. Let's get to Joe. Dr. Joe Zindel. Welcome to the Life Podcast.
1: I'm excited to have you, man. Likewise, Dr. Sean Pastuch. Did I say that right?
0: No, but it was close. That's how my grandma used to say it. Well, no, she would say Pastuch. My parents say Pastuch. I say Pastuch. And I once bought Polish water ice at a uh-huh. carnival. And the woman <laughs> needed to see ID because it was alcoholic. And she's like, oh, Pastuch. I was like, no, it's Pastuch. And she goes, no, it's Pastuch. It's from the, and she like named the village and the jobs and all. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go with what you said.
1: Yeah. She seems to know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. She's. And then I I was recently at the, um, desert botanical gardens in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And there was a guy there who was Polish. And I was like, let me ask you something. What is my name? And I gave him, (laughs) I gave him my ID. And he also said, it's Pastuch. I said, oh, all right. I'm still not telling you. that. There people
1: it is. That. Yeah. Now you know a little bit more about yourself.
0: Right? But what I also know is that, like, you have to clear your throat to say it. So we're just going to stay with pasto, because most people, it's hard to say pastuch.
1: Unless you're, like, I imagine if you're Jewish, it would be a little bit more easy, like myself.
0: Well, I am Jewish. I am oh, okay. Jewish. Uh, so I can, I can, you know, with the best of them. <laughs> I yeah. get challah Absolutely. bread, yeah. all the things. Yeah. But that's not necessarily Sorry. easy for everybody else. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep it simple. I taught my kids how to say it. We're not going to explain to them why I was wrong about how to say their name eight years into their lives. Uh, Joe, I love your social media presence, and I'm excited to chat with you today because you are a guy who takes this hyperbolic content that is all over the internet about all kinds of scientific you know, nonsense, frankly, in a lot of cases, and you boil it yeah. down to... A, an understandable bite-sized piece of information, and then for the people who want more, you give them all of the depth as you go through the content. Depth. What's that? Yeah. I do my best. Yeah, well, you know, when, when, when I talk, look, I don't frequently find myself talking about cancer, but when I am, I'm not talking to the level of knowledge that you have in any stretch of the imagination. And I imagine a lot of the things that I talk about with my friends, my family, are the things that a, a scientist like you who lives in the cancer world mm. is like, oh my God, people still think these things. This is crazy. How do we help people stop thinking these things and start thinking more productively for themselves? And so I'm excited to have that conversation with you today because that's where I'd like it to go.
1: That's where my page, um, that's kind of like the main uh, goal for my page is to, to kind of bring things down to the street level so people can get a better understanding Mm-hmm. Um, because I would not reasonably anticipate that people that don't have the training that I have to be able to, you know, have those kind of complex discussions, and and it is reasonable, um, and I guess it's important to have empathy for people um, in understanding that they they wouldn't realistically know what I know about cancer. So that's why I try and teach people.
0: Well, it's a it's a terrifying disease.
1: Absolutely, I th- I, I would argue probably the most terrifying disease.
0: Um, it depends. I like the two diseases that scare me the most because I've had personal experience with them, not in that I've had them, but in that, um, people I've cared for, have had them pancreatic cancer and ALS. Those two diagnoses to me are like, Oh, I try not to even think about them as being in existence. Cause I don't want to woo woo manifest them.
1: Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Neurodegenerative diseases mm-hmm. are, uh, They're definitely with, um, with cancers, especially, you know, when you, when you look at things like pancreatic cancers or even lung cancers, um, yeah, they're pretty bad.
0: Yeah. It sucks. It sucks. Yeah. So we're going to dive into it. Um, is there a question that people ask you most often, or like a theme of questions that people are asking you most often that you're finding yourself answering that you could answer here once and for all? Yeah.
1: it's something I've answered many times that I would have assumed would have been once and for all. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, I think probably one of the most frequent questions that I get is, you know, does X food or material cause cancer? It it could be sugar um, could be aspartame, artificial sweeteners like aspartame. Um, Yeah. um, So, so I would say it's probably, probably the sugar or aspartame thing is probably the, the most uh, common question I get, whether or not it causes cancer. Okay. And then the second most common question is, is how can I prevent cancer? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where a lot of the nuance comes from on my, on my Instagram and, and other social media presence.
0: So since we know people generally have an aversion to nuance, if you had to give an over-generalized answer and I will give you the, um, the the footnote of this is not, this is an incomplete answer. Does sugar and sucralose and aspartame and all that stuff cause cancer? Like, is there a direct correlate to you taking this stuff and you get cancer more often?
1: Um, I wish I could keep this simple, hmm. but in doing so, I can with confidence say no those things do not cause cancer. Because realistically, um, when we consider the dose of things that need to be consumed to kind of screw up certain components of our biology, whether it's you know like consuming so much sugar that it messes with our liver metabolism in such a way chronically, um, that it's going to affect our metabolism for a long period of time, um, most people aren't consuming that much of a specific like thing like aspartame or, or glucose to really cause issues. Um, but it is associated with, um, you know, overeating as an example, I've spoken about this on many podcasts, um, you know, overeating over a long period of time can put us in a position where we develop obesity and you develop obesity and, and diabetes and things generally before you develop cancers, um, which, you know, they do have their own links to cancers, but it's kind of like an amalgamation of things at that point. So. Again, going back to keeping it simple, no, inherently those things do not cause cancer. Um, but it doesn't mean that they don't have potential in making it worse upon consumption.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: chronic well, consumption.
0: So So let me let me share with you how I heard that answer and you can tell me if this is an accurate yeah. interpretation. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Eating sugar will not reliably cause cancer. Eating sucralose, eating aspartame will not reliably be a thing that you can point to and say, oh, this person didn't have cancer. They started eating sugar, aspartame, and sucralose, and now they will have cancer. There is no direct line from point A to point B. Correct. However, those foods are linked to predisposing disease factors that can lead to cancer or make the prevalence of cancer worse in regards to how your body handles it, how you respond to it, and what your prognosis is
1: when you get it. Is that is that appropriate? That is 100% accurate. Look at that. Good job. Thank you. Yeah, Maybe I've done a good job in educating people, or you're just brilliant. <clears throat> I don't think I'm brilliant. I, you know what? I'll
0: tell you what, Joe. Circumstantially, I think I have some brilliance. This is not the area in which I have it, which means you did a really good job explaining it.
1: Okay, I appreciate that.
0: Well I, I think that um, what I really like about your answer is the 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 questions typically being asked are asked in a binary, right? It's does this cause that? Does this cause that? Well no, but this is a factor in causing that, which is a factor in causing that, right? So Yes. The, the, the professional athlete who's eating sugar all the time, as a recovery from their overwhelming workout for the average person, isn't dealing with obesity and isn't, therefore, at a greater risk for cancer than the same version of them if they were dealing with obesity. And yeah. they're eating the same amount of sugar. So it's not it can't be a one-factor question.
1: Yeah. And these same sort of contexts help me address this question, too, from the perception that um, I can educate upon the premise that um, correlation does not always equal causation, right? So I think I think people really need to understand that life isn't binary. Few things are, you know, A points directly to B. There's a lot of this. There's all this gray area in between that leads to even B, you know, a, a particular outcome. So um, just because something appears to be a causative association to a particular outcome like cancer or diabetes or obesity or or any disease for that matter, doesn't mean that it is. There's all of these very small nuanced factors that uh, that lead to um, a particular outcome, whether it's Behavioral or environmental or, or even genetic in, in a lot of cases, whether it's you know neurodegenerative or from a cancer perspective,
0: mm-hmm.
1: well, and that's you know what we have to educate people on.
0: Well, that goes back to the idea that like just because you're dealing with obesity doesn't mean you're going to get cancer. Obesity doesn't right. cause cancer. Obesity is a factor that increases the risk of cancer. I imagine yeah. specific cancer types, not all cancer types, too. So. I asked my wife what questions she would want me to ask you. And one of her questions was like, is a cancer cell, not a cancer cell? Meaning meaning, if a treatment works for one cancer, why doesn't it work for all cancers?
1: That's a great question. And it's something that as cancer biologists, we uh, often focus our whole careers on. Um, why one treatment doesn't work for another cancer type often depends on the organ that the cancer originates in. So the environment at which the, the tumor cell originates in or becomes a cancer cell, from benign to malignant, uh, non-cancerous to cancerous, will dictate the you know, the inner mechanistic cell stuff that contributes to some form of dysregulation in the cell, whether it's like cell division, or if it's some sort of metabolic component, like they'll mutate an enzyme which increases glucose absorption or utilization of uh, an amino acid like glutamine as an example. Um, So oftentimes, again, depending on where that cancer originates, those mechanisms where the cancer adapts will change the type of therapy that is employed. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, what you're saying is Cancer cells all have similar qualities, but there are nuanced differences between the cancer. Does that make di-
1: sense?
0: Yeah, can you hear me? Can you hear me?
1: Yeah, 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 it lagged a little bit.
0: Okay. What you're saying is cancer cells all have similar qualities, but based on where they originate, they have nuanced differences as to how those qualities are manifesting, which means the same treatment for one won't work for another because of the mechanism that it was born from.
1: Yeah, pretty much.
0: Okay. Um, to, to keep going down that route, one of the things that I often hear about cancer is that early detection, early detection, early detect Like that's the key, right? The earlier you find it, the better. I forget the movie. I think it was The Island, but that could be totally wrong, where people wake up in the morning every day, they do a little finger prick, they pee into a urinal at, or a toilet if you're a woman, and it does a full urinalysis and a full blood analysis. And it tells you, you need to eat more of this today. You need to do more of this today. You need to, you know, be careful of this today. And it was a futuristic movie made maybe like 15 years ago. Of uh, course. Would that, like, is there not a, a reasonable argument for that kind of stuff to be happening where we're detecting things every day? Because if I can detect a cancer, there are certain cancers that <clears throat> the reason they're so dangerous is you don't find them until after they've metastasized.
1: Yeah, and I think a really good example of that would be something like pancreatic cancer, um, even even certain types of ovarian cancers as well, um, and even lung cancers. You know, you look at the top cancers that are primarily killing most people. Lung cancer is, I think, at the top next to breast cancer, um, and a lot of it is because it's really hard to detect. Um, I think twenty about twenty percent of all cancer deaths are related to lung cancer. Um, but whereas you look at something like pancreatic cancer, again, really, really hard to detect because it's, you know, it's in the pancreas and you generally don't have symptoms until later disease progression. Uh, you know, There's like a, I think five to 10% five-year survival rate if you get pancreatic cancer. So in general, it's a very scary thing to get, but um, I think it's somewhat unrealistic to expect that people are going to be that on top of their health to where if they did have a specific cancer type like that, they would be in a position to detect it super early. Um, we have developed tests. There's this actually, there's this company in North Carolina where I just moved that I did try and get a job at. Um, they're called Grail. And so they made a multi-cancer uh, early detection test and it focuses on screening of blood. So you you give a sample of blood basically and it detects, Um, circulating tumor DNA and um, if you have a somewhat early tumor as as cancer as a progression you can develop certain mutations as a component that DNA could be circulating through the bloodstream you can collect that blood sequence that DNA and say okay we found this specific mutation which is prevalent in something like pancreatic cancer or a specific type of ovarian cancer as an example and so there are these tests now that are coming out that make it more accessible to do early cancer screening and detection. Um, but we still do have a very long way to go. And it is very intrinsically challenging uh, for organs like the pancreas. Mm-hmm. Um, we're always going to have challenges um, when trying to, to look for cancers early in, in pretty much any organ, seemingly independent of the technology that we have available. There's a, there's a lot of limitations depending on where the organ is in the body.
0: Well, you said you tried to get a job there, so I can't trust their product because they didn't get, <laughs> they, they didn't hire you. So there's no way that I could ever buy that product and trust that it's going to be intelligent.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's actually a really good product. I've I've uh, spoken about it on my page. It's, I was also applying for a position that uh, wasn't necessarily scientific. I'm a lab based scientist, so mm-hmm. um, I was applying for a more, I guess, managerial position. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my skill set wasn't suited for it. They, they need lab scientists.
0: I remember um, my first day of microbiology mm. and the teacher did a really good job. He put on the screen in the room. The reason I'm, I'm sharing this is because you work in a lab and so this is effectively what you do every day at the most basic level. He put on the front of the room a picture of the Mona Lisa. He's like, what is this? Everyone's like, the Mona Lisa. Great, next picture. Washington Monument. Great. Next picture. And we all knew, like, state of California, right? Like, we all knew what all of these things were on the screen. Then he put them back up, and they were blurred. They were, like, distorted. And it was, what's this? Mona Lisa. What's this? Washington Monument. What's this? State of California. He's like, how do you know that if it doesn't look exactly like it is supposed to look? Like, well, we know We know what the basic form is, and so we can spot it when we see it. Mm -hmm. And then he threw up another slide. He's like, what's this? And we were like, I have no idea. A bunch of pink and red and purple and blue dots. And he's like, this is a cell. And And he started to go through everything that was in it. And he's like, when you're done with this class, you will be able to identify pictures like this, disease to disease, deformation to deformation healthy cell to healthy cell
1: Mm.
0: it's almost like speaking a totally different language
1: yeah and it takes a very very trained eye to do so and that's i think one of the really for me one of the more beautiful parts of science is is learning to be able to look at i I think what you were looking at were like stained histology slides of, of cross sections of cells um, looking at specific organelles, like knowing what a mitochondria looks like or knowing what the endoplasmic reticulum looks like, uh-huh. those sorts of things. And there's, there's a lot of beauty that, that comes from that. It's like, you know, we, we see a lot of beauty from paintings in, in daily life. And, and for me as a scientist, you know, being able to manipulate very, very, very small things and get a very pretty picture from it um, was always very magical to me. And, and it's one of the reasons why I became a, a wet lab scientist. What
0: does a wet lab mean?
1: Just somebody who works with like cells or, um, you know, tissue culture.
0: Okay. So, so all day long, like if you were to have a successful day that was like Joe Zendell did the thing and everyone in the science community was talking about it, What what is the thing you
1: would have done? Oh, man. That's tough because I've never really thought of myself as any sort of, um, like famous figure. Um, and I never, never go into something striving to do the thing, you know? Does anybody Uh, who does the thing go into it striving to do the thing? I think if you asked any Nobel laureate that, they would say no. That's what I mean. So... I can't realistically answer that question because every day I go in and I just do the very best that I can with the tools that I have available to me. I see. And I think that that's our job as a scientist. And also it's a lot of the times and excuse my language, shit just goes end up. Mm -hmm. You have to be very adaptive in, in looking at what you have around you to be able to troubleshoot anything that goes wrong. If you have the ability and sometimes more often than not you don't have the ability and you just have to call it quits. Hmm. And that's a hard, hard thing to go through as well.
0: I imagine uh, detaching yourself romantically from the work that you're doing and trying to elicit an outcome as compared to doing the process and accepting the outcome as the outcome of the process that you didn't know what the outcome was going to be. That's gotta be um, a harder part of that job.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's arguably one of the hardest parts as a scientist is learning to, Kind of separate yourself and just appreciate the data for what it is, given the tools you have available to you, because there could be a technological advancement 20 years from now that the question you were trying to resolve you just couldn't answer with the tools that you had available to you at that time. But 20 years from now, we have a new um, assay or a new reagent that that helps answer that that question upon scientific advancement, um, and then you know you can you know keep track of that particular field that you were interested in and and find the answer to that question. But it does sometimes take 10 to 20 years, if not more. Yeah.
0: What is the thing right now that for you in regards to your work life is the most enjoyable?
1: These are really good questions. This is a really good podcast. Thank um, you. Yeah, I appreciate this. You know, I don't often get asked about things that I enjoy in my life Mm -hmm. um, in my job. So it's nice that I get to share this perspective regarding my job. um, as a scientist, the thing that I enjoy the most is just going to lab. You know, I've, I've always been, I've always loved being in a lab environment and just, you know, pipetting solutions, playing with cells, you know, of course it's in a very regimented way. Like I have a plan going into certain things. Sometimes I don't, sometimes I can be a little bit creative in my current job. I have to be very regulated and regimented, but for me, it's very fun to go into lab. And it also, it helps that I'm doing something meaningful. Um, I've tried to put myself in positions where the work that I I, I'm doing is meaningful. And sometimes in my, in my past, at least, um, it's been hard for me to do certain experiments that I know aren't going to be very meaningful. Um, And by meaningful, what's really important to me is clinical translation. If I know the thing that I'm studying is going to have a decent potential in providing some sort of information to push the ball forward, so to speak.
0: Well, what's something that you would do that wouldn't have that? And what would be the purpose of doing it?
1: Sometimes. So as we progress in our PhDs and academic labs, oftentimes you'll be given a task that is kind of sexy, right? It's fancy. It's fancy science to do, whether it's like a method development or it's some crazy question that you have. Um, sometimes you'll be given a question with very few tools that you have available to you and be almost expected to make magic. Um, and sometimes academic labs in, in particular settings, you'll be pushed to get an answer, even though you can do an experiment five, ten times and not get that answer. And, but you'll be forced to report very basic information that seems to suggest that what your initial intention was true. If I were to say this in a more simple manner, it's almost like, and I say this very loosely, cause I don't want to sow distrust in academic research, but it's kind of like stretching the truth. Sometimes you have to stretch the truth because the person that you're to your journals. Does that make sense?
0: You cut out there for a moment after you said, stretch the truth because, and then it went to.
1: Sure. So (laughs) sometimes we have to stretch the truth because sometimes the people we work for require these fancy things to be able to advance in their careers. So like a lab leader, uh, what we call a principal investigator needs fancy things to be able to communicate to their committee for, you know, becoming a professor of a particular school mm-hmm. or um, publishing in a big journal ha- helps like publishing in nature, cell or science. Sometimes we have to publish these fancy things, um, which na- may not necessarily reflect truth, but they have like a fancy methodology or um, a fancy biological outcome. I see. It, it's, and they're not always true and they're not always reproducible.
0: It's the political game.
1: It's the political game.
0: It's it's wild to me that that game exists within a world that is so essential for us to keep people alive. And at the same time, I understand the necessity for it because it's very difficult due to the subjectivity to make merit-based decisions unless if people can pull those kinds of things off.
1: Yeah, and you know, all things considered, I've worked in very, very good labs in academic labs, um, but actually, and I've found this somewhat odd because once you're in academia they tell you that industry life and biotech life is kind of like the devil's playground like you sell your you know you're selling out so to speak but now that i've been in the biotech and and industry space i've actually gained more trust in pharmaceutical pharmaceutical development and drugs Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: because from an academic perspective a lot of the times the at least in cancer research the the drugs Mm -hmm. that we're testing very rarely make it into clinical trials Um, because there's not that much money in academia despite the grants that we're given to do Mm. research. You know, 200,000 in a grant, that may seem like a lot of money to do research to most people, but it goes at the snap of a finger. Right. Because the reagents we use are not cheap. You'll spend $1,000 on a tube with 50 microliters in it. Microliters. Most people don't operate in those volumes.
0: No, that's that's five one-thousandths. No, 51,000ths of a, you said five or 50?
1: Uh, 50 microliters. Oh, so
0: that's 51,000ths of a liter. Yeah.
1: Very small volumes mm-hmm. that you'll pay thousands of dollars for. Yeah. And so that money goes very quick. Um, but in industry, you have a lot more money and there's a lot more regulation that needs to happen. And so, of, of course, with that level of strictness um, and regulation by the FDA, um, things have very, very strict passing criteria for what is a good drug and what is a bad drug.
0: So I, I was going to go a different way and then you brought up the, the drug stuff. So now I got to ask one mm-hmm. of the things that to me is this like, I can't decide if it's conspiracy theory or logical. Okay. Is the idea that pharmaceutical companies do not produce drugs to cure diseases They produce drugs to treat diseases because a cure has no ongoing value. And I don't know if that's complete bullshit, if it's partial bullshit, or if it's just totally logical and why why would we expect them to do anything else?
1: Meaning,
0: meaning, by the way, that there isn't even malintent there. It's just like, why would you expect a for-profit business to do something that is not profitable and then be angry at them? for something they never said they were trying to do. That's, that's what I'm trying to reconcile.
1: Yeah. And no, that's, that's a great question. And it's, and it's honestly one that I get a lot as well. Um, but realistically, and again, there's a lot of nuance behind this as well. Not every company is going to be a hundred percent ethical. Like, as you mentioned, you know, we have to make profits when we make a particular drug, but it doesn't mean that it's never with the intent to cure a disease. Mm. Um, so oftentimes when I try and explain this to people, I tell them, you know, we have chemotherapeutics currently FDA approved that are being treated um, in into cancer patients that have cured cancer patients. But like we spoke about previously, that same cure for one patient isn't going to be a cure for another patient with the same exact cancer mm-hmm. because of just how complex that cancer is, even independent of the fact that they originated from the same point there are still underlying mechanisms that vary between people to people. But we have produced and sold cures from a pharmaceutical company perspective that have cured people. Um, But, you know, sometimes there are companies that make a drug that, yes, the intent to cure a particular disease, whether it's a certain type of cancer, is there. But sometimes due to limitations of, like, money or availability to new screening modalities to, to, you know, understand that drug a little bit more. Sometimes we have to release things somewhat prematurely Mm
0: -hmm.
1: or imperfectly just to get a drug on a market to be tested.
0: Right. Well, people don't, I think that's something there's a loose understanding of is that uh, the first people to buy a drug in the marketplace or to have that drug administered to them are the last part of the experiment.
1: Um. Yeah. Yeah, I think in general that's true.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's obviously specifically there's always going to be variability to the nuance of that that statement. Uh, in right. general, what I'm describing is, you know, you go, you get to human trials, and then it's okay. After human trials, we we still don't know how this is going to work over a span of a million people, so mm-hmm. we have to put it out to a hundred thousand, and and those are people you get who. That many people. Right. Well, they're hoping it's going to, those are people in your clinical trials, no, not clinical. Those are the people after clinical trials who are basically like, now we're going to find out how it goes with the general public. And we still don't know we have best guesses out there.
1: Well, that's the, that's kind of the purpose of the clinical trial, right? Mm-hmm. So there are certain phases to clinical trials, phase one, two, and three. And in each phase, we determine things like toxicity, drug stability, um, you know, dosing strategies, um, route of administration, whether it should be injected in a vein or, or maybe be given orally. Mm. Um, and a lot of this depends on drug stability and things like that too. So a lot of these, these you know, treatment perspectives are determined in a clinical phase um, of, of clinical trials, clinical phases of clinical trials. And um, you know, then once it passes all those trials, it can get FDA approved, to be actually given to the patients who are exhibiting a particular disease uh, or a certain type of cancer, as an example. Um, So hopefully that stuff is typically weeded out in clinical trials before it's even considered to be given to larger patient populations. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, we just, I think, I think that right now in the phase of the world that we're existing in, especially in the Western world, especially, especially in the United States, we're coming through what, what we just experienced with COVID where people either have like unquestioned trust of government and big pharma or people right. are believing that everyone in the government and big pharma are trying to kill them, and there are very few people who are in between. <laughs> I'd like to believe myself as somebody in between. Uh,
1: I, I think you are I think I, myself uh, as well.
0: I appreciate that. Uh, I, you know, look, I think that we're we're a uh, we're a minority as it pertains to that, and I wish that we were more the majority where it was. You know, there's. There's confluence and there's intent. And I think that there's a level of, of both that go into all different kinds of things. And too often we swing quickly to the negative or the the unadulterated positive.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, one of the things that you were talking about with with drug efficacy, and I think this is actually before we came online, was the, the prevalence of antibodies after a drug is administered. Mm-hmm. Um, what, how do we differentiate if a drug is effective at creating antibodies from a drug has an adjutant in it that creates the antibodies. Do do you, do you follow my question there? Cause all all drugs need some kind of an adjutant, right? In order to create a response. And then the drug is there to train the response, if I'm not mistaken, or to recognize the response.
1: Um, not necessarily. Um, so there's a difference between vaccines. Okay. or, or immunotherapies and, um, and small molecules. So they don't always need an adjuvant to be able to induce an immune response. Um, so when, when we give cancer, um, cancer drugs as an example, whether we, um, so again, route of administration is very important, whether I decide to inject it into muscle or, um, into the, into the veins intravenously, it plays a role in how that drug is absorbed and recognizes certain tissues. I mean, it also, you know, is associated with specific toxicities depending on where you inject it um but what i was more so talking about was like after a certain period of time in general most drugs that i inject especially uh immunotherapies of the antibody type your body will break down those things and develop an immune response against it so sometimes they'll you know people will develop Um, I guess, quote unquote, resistances to a particular drug, because you can inject that drug into them with the intent to treat the cancer, but their body has made antibodies against that particular drug, preventing it from working.
0: Okay. That's one
1: mode of of resistance to a drug.
0: Okay. I'm following you now. Does that make sense? It does. Is, Is cancer a symptom of the modern world? And let, let me let me give some some context to that question. Sure. Um, I have not done a ton of research into you know Aboriginal people in Australia or the Pygmies or you know the, the the native tribes of Africa. I am not a I don't even know what the profession is called of the person who does that, but I know it's not mine. But epidemiology, probably. Maybe I think it's it's even like. If we're not, if we're taking the, the 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 disease out of it, it's like a sociologist of sorts who specializes in, you know, tribes who still live their ancient way. I, I, it's not what I do. I know that. Me neither. And and so, but when you read the headlines about that stuff, and I, I like to consider myself a person who reads at least the first paragraph and then decides if I want to go on, not just the headline. It seems yeah. as if we're bombarded with these people don't get cancer. Right, like they went into the Amazon. They encountered 20,000 people. None of them had cancer. None of their elders had cancer. None of their children had cancer. So it's something about our society. And I don't know if that's a bunch of nonsense or not, but if it's not a bunch of nonsense, it leads everyone to the same conclusion. We're doing things now that we didn't do then that are leading us to getting cancer. And if we can figure out what those things are, we can stop getting
1: cancer. I wish this was a simple answer, but as you know, nothing is ever that simple. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can look at specific tribes. Like there's, um, it's like some sort of Eskimo tribe up in. The Inuits? Yeah, I don't the, the Inuits. The Inuits. Yeah, yeah. Inuits. Yeah, good job. Probably.
0: Um, someone's going to someone's gonna cancel us. Whatever, but... they'll catch it. Whatever. Yeah.
1: But there, there's <laughs> tribes all over the world where they have low likelihoods of getting cancers, as you mentioned, and as I've looked at as well, whether I remember their names or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have to look at other factors about these people too. A lot of the times they don't live past 50. Mm. And so a really big component of this is, is to understand that cancer is also a disease of, of aging. Um, even when you look at the mechanistic components of cancer cells, as they divide, um, or even normal cells, we have this thing called the Hayflick limit, which actually was discovered at the place where I did my thesis work in, in Philadelphia at the Wistar Institute by Leonard Hayflick. Um, It's basically the amount of times a cell can realistically divide um, or or basically replicate its DNA. There's a finite amount to which it can divide and do that. And then after it does that, what happens is called the state of senescence. The cells stop dividing, they can retain some metabolic activity, and then they end up committing themselves to what's called apoptosis or a programmed version of cell death, basically. And those particular cellular components can be recycled. But that's essentially what aging is. That's aging at a molecular level or a cellular level, as some people online who are seemingly quackish like to say, (laughs) um, but aging at at a, on a broader level is, you know, you know, how long can we get someone to sustain cell division over a long period of time through balance of all of their organs to be able to live as long as humanly possible. And that varies very dramatically between people, depending on where we live, whether or not we grow up in a specific tribe, the amount of resources we have available to us, whether, you know, it's a socioeconomic standpoint, um, the level of education we have. So there's a lot of variables that go into determining how long someone is likely to live, but they're not finite variables. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It does. Okay. And, and so, keep going. No, no, it's good. Go ahead.
0: No, so what you're what you're saying is, there basically it, it's an answer that won't make anybody happy, but it's the reality. It's yeah, yeah there might be something there, but there's so yeah. many factors that we can't we can't tie any of them to this. Correct. But it, it could be that these people have a genetic predisposition to not getting cancer. These people have a diet that when you couple it with the environment that they're in works, but if you put that diet in this environment, it doesn't work. It's something Mm -hmm. different happens. And so there's so many factors to count to account for that really we can't assume anything. It's
1: Yeah. yeah. So there, there's something that I actually like to talk about and, and it's, it actually stems from my roots as a scientist. When I first started my scientific career, I started as a marine biologist, and so oftentimes in marine ecology, and you know, when you study marine organisms, you look at organisms that have a low likelihood of developing cancers. Uh, one of those organisms is—it's um, a type of whale. I forgot the actual name of the whale; it's—it's it's skipping me right now. But certain species of whales and certain species of elephants as well—they don't get cancers. Um, do you want you know, me to ra- of-
0: do you want me to rapid fire names of whales at you, and you can?
1: I'm just kidding. Oh, joke I, I did a post on it a while ago. I only have um, like four
0: whales I can name anyway.
1: So you can you can tell us.
0: The orca, blue, sperm,
1: uh oh, I think I'm out. It's neither of those. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, there are certain species of organisms like you know, elephants and some species of whales. And even if you look at clams as well, they just don't seem to get cancers. And there are some mechanistic components of this associated with um, them having multiple copies of, um, uh, of a gene called P53. And so we also have P53 uh, within our genome, and it's called a tumor suppressor for a very good reason. It helps to regulate um, DNA, basically, and um, DNA regulation. Um, and basically, they have multiple copies of this. So oftentimes, this gene in humans, we only have two copies, one from our mom and one from our dad were diploid organisms. Um, But whales and elephants have multiple copies of this. They're frequently mutated in humans, but if you have more than two copies of it, you're not necessarily relying on only one other copy. Um, So in organisms like that, that have multiple copies of these tumor suppressors, it reduces their likelihood of getting cancers. It doesn't mean that they can't get the cancer. They can get a different cancer, but they may not get a specific cancer that's associated with something like p53 mutation which in the context of human biology is a lot of cancers yeah think about 50 percent of human cancers have uh some form of a a p53 mutation in it which leads to uh, some bad things down the line as as cancers develop but you know oftentimes i try and explain to people that you know again this is this is very complicated that there's a lot of genetic components associated with you know why some people are more predisposed to getting certain cancers and others are not Mm-hmm. But we're all human, so we have to compare these things to to our own species. We can't we can't make those same conclusions when examining other species. We can understand mechanistically why other species don't get those specific cancers by looking at our own genome, but they're not realistically gonna apply to us unless we evolve millions of years to look like and genetically be similar to that animal, which we've evolved away from. Mm-hmm. That's an impossibility.
0: Right. We have we have different problems that we no longer deal with.
1: Yeah. And we've traded them. You know, if you were a whale or if you were an elephant, you'd have very different problems. You'd have predispositions to other diseases mm-hmm. if you were a whale scientist, if you were to study those things. Right. As a whale.
0: So um, I'm going to ask you some really simple stuff that is going to sound like, wow, I thought Sean might have some intelligence and now i'm not sure he does because these are the things that regular people myself included talk about and i'm like i can't tell you hundred percent no but it, i don't think the answer to that is yes and then i want to bring it back to how uh how some of this stuff makes you feel when you see it online
1: so i want to ask you one can... second i want to say that there is a lot of intelligence in simplicity so i try not to judge people to the best of my ability when I'm asked these questions, because there's always, almost always, a rationale, a good rationale, why someone thinks that way.
0: I appreciate that, and and I could have worded it better. The, these are the things that seem outlandish. That the in
1: general they are, but in a in a very reasonable way.
0: Right. So I'll tie up why they're all not crazy outlandish. The reasonability of it in the end, and then I'll ask you something else about how you feel about this stuff that I think is re- that will be really helpful for, for other people and even for, for you potentially, but can the following things make it more likely for me to get cancer? Can they, or are they likely to, let's just say, are they likely to standing in front of the microwave? Not likely. Okay. Um, standing next to a router, not likely, um, living under power lines, not likely eating a bunch
1: of fish. A little bit more likely, but still not that likely. Okay, creamer in my coffee. Not likely. Um, well, it, no. If it's if it's not if it's not pasteurized. <laughs> so wait, pasteurized is better or non-pasteurized is better? You want to drink dairy that has been pasteurized. Why? Because it's sterile. You don't want living microbes in the things that you're consuming because it could lead to infection. Okay.
0: So what about microbes that are in things like prebiotics and probiotics and um,
1: yogurt? So there's a very big difference between microbes that already colonize your gut and help you digest food and microbes that, um, that can cause harm or dysbiosis. So, yeah. so
0: you're talking about yeah. like the parasite that lives in the milk that wasn't killed through the pasteurization that i drank out a
1: parasite or a fungi or some form of bacteria the same is true with meat products okay for example like not to go on a tangent here but there's there's a lot of different strains of e coli
0: mm-hmm.
1: some strains of e coli can cause such bad intestinal distress that you'll probably just want to like kill yourself it's mm-hmm. horrible absolutely horrible it makes you throw up and shit yourself at the same time mm-hmm. absolutely horrible. but there there are good strains of e coli that help you digest food Mm -hmm. you just don't want the bad one in your gut. Right. I follow you. Yeah. Those are, those are specific bacterial (laughs) types.
0: puking and shitting at the same time. Makes me think about like, is it possible to sneeze and fart at the same time and not shit that that's a totally, that's not a question for you. It's just, it's a question I've pondered. Um,
1: something I hope to never experience. (laughs)
0: Um, okay. Going back to that. Um, to wear suntan lotion or not to wear suntan lotion
1: to wear suntan lotion does it matter well, what to wear, to wear sunscreen go on uh uv protection is very different than tanning lotion okay so, so... radiation is bad mm-hmm. that comes from the sun our our um atmosphere does a pretty good job at filtering a lot of harmful radiation out but some of it does get through the clouds which also helps us sustain life through Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, different things, but too much exposure to UVA and UVB radiation can damage our skin cells, which increases likelihoods for certain things like melanoma and other skin cancers. So is is
0: is there like a happy zone between walking around looking like a ghost and walking around with oil meant to accentuate the sun that's hitting your skin?
1: What do you mean by that?
0: I think we all know a person who, when they show up to the beach or to the pool or whatever, they just lather themselves in so much of this stuff that they look white. And then as soon as it starts to evaporate, they, or, or absorb, they put more on. So they just look white, like a sheet of paper all day long. That to me seems unhealthy.
1: And and you're talking, about, you're, you're talking about sunscreen, like SPF yeah, protection. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wouldn't say it's unhealthy, but you know, so for example, me as as I can I can use myself as an example. I am mm-hmm. um, Italian Jew. I have a lot of moles on my skin as I've genetically inherited, mm-hmm. and so I have a, a relatively higher likelihood than some people to develop certain things like melanoma. So when I go to the beach, I don't lather on a ridiculous amount of SPF. I put on enough to cover, you know, the 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 parts of skin that are being exposed um, if I'm going to be out in the sun. And when I, you know, can start to see myself see my skin getting a little bit red and starting to burn, you can even feel it. I'll apply more, but I won't apply such a a, a dubious amount or an extreme amount that looks absolutely white and absurd. So it's okay to tan. Enough to absorb.
0: So it's not okay. It's okay to tan. It's not okay to burn. Or is it tanning even too much?
1: I think a lot of people don't realize that you can, and you do, you tan while wearing SPF. Mm -hmm. So the ability of your skin to absorb sunlight is different than the ability of your skin to deal with radiation damage. Okay. So producing producing melanin in in the skin is different than dealing with DNA damage due to uh, radiation interacting with the skin cells and damaging DNA. So how do we know if
0: we've gone too far? I need you to help me with my wife, okay?
1: <laughs> she's like, she get absolutely burnt at the beach?
0: No, she's good. I, I feel like she's probably doing the right, the healthy thing. But she's like, before we leave the house, put the lotion on. I'm like, I'm not putting the lotion on before we leave the house. And if I get to the beach and I don't feel like I'm burning, I'm not putting the lotion on at all. And she's like, you're stupid. You should put the lotion on. I don't want to deal with you when your skin gets messed up later in life because you wouldn't put lotion on when you were in your
1: thirties. You know, maybe this is a wife thing because my wife says the same shit to me. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I think I think you know, coming from a cancer biologist perspective, this is going to sound a little bit crazy coming from me. I don't put on sunscreen when I leave the house, but I do now. I now wear an SPF protecting um, facial moisturizer. Okay, that's it when I go to the beach and when I know that I'm going to be under prolonged exposure of the sun, I'll put on, you know, SPF 30 plus sunscreen.
0: Okay. So um, are the SPF yeah. like 873s just marketing?
1: Yeah. Okay. Um. So it, it only, it only <clears throat> very minimally gets better after SPF 30, 35 ish. Okay. But it's, it's like, it's still good, like it, it goes up, but it's like from 90, 99% to 99.1%. Right. There's a little bit more protection, but it's not necessarily worth the money that you're paying for that extra five to 20 SPF, or in some marketing cases, a uh, hundred. I understand.
0: I'm tempted. to- I think there's to...
1: also a chemical limit to how much SPF you can reach. And sometimes it's just lying.
0: I'm tempted to ask how it works, but I don't want you to answer that. People can Google it if they're curious because it feels it feels like a like a like a you're rubbing on like a force field, but that doesn't make any sense. So there's a mechanism there it Kind
1: of is. yeah, yeah, it kind of is. We'll keep it simple, but it kind of is a a force field that helps to deflect uh, ultraviolet radiation. okay, I see. It's ultraviolet it's based on the electromagnetic spectrum. so, Instead of absorbing into your skin, it's deflected. Got you.
0: It's like putting a mirror on your skin to bounce out. Kind of, yeah. Okay. Um, Even if you can't see it.
1: Uh, Oh, That's how radiation works. You can't see it. Um, Ask the people at Chernobyl. I don't know any of them. Exactly. Most of them are dead. (laughs) Because they got cancer. Really bad cancer.
0: Good documentary, though. Or not documentary, but like... Yeah, HBO
1: show. Yeah, Oh,
0: do sunglasses increase the likelihood of skin damage from the sun because your eyes aren't judging how much sunlight's hitting your skin?
1: Damaging your eyes? No. Or so damaging there's a doctor.
0: Your skin? There's a doctor on Instagram who is, speaks in language that's much—it's um, above where I want to be reading my Instagram, so I stopped following him. His name yeah, is Dr. probably G- stupid. Yeah, maybe. His name is Dr. Jack Cruz. Um, K-R-U-S-E. Anyway, his whole thing is part of his whole thing. That would be an exaggeration. One of his things is if you wear sunglasses, your eyes are measuring the radiation, like the the UV rating from the sun, and they're going to help you to naturally protect your skin. And if you wear sunglasses, your eyes don't get any of that input, and so your skin's more likely to burn.
1: No, that's... That's absolutely not true. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate it. I, I, I wish it was, but no, That that's honestly, like, I can't, I can't logically, I can't logically wrap my head around why that would even be applicable. Listen, I, I'm your just. Your eyes, it's not like you have some sort of bionic ability to where your eyes will somehow change the, the metabolism of your skin to be able to protect you from, radiation listen i'm the messenger so no
0: <laughs> absolutely not perfect much appreciated um what about like uh hair care and skincare products that are chemical
1: laden chemical laden what do you mean
0: uh they're not naturally like it's it's all like yeah that was a bad question
1: um, I, I get I get where you're going. Let me let me see if I can summarize where you're going. There are a lot of chemicals in whether it's sunscreens, moisturizers, a lot of makeup products yes. marketed towards women. Um that people are concerned whether or not they put it on their skin, it's going to lead to some sort of health issues. Yes. Is that where you're going?
0: Yeah, there's all these companies now that are like, I'm this free, we're this free, we're that free. And then there's a website that you can go and see how dangerous is your product, all that kind of stuff.
1: There are, again, this is not my area of expertise. There are people within specific fields of cosmetics that study this a lot a lot better than I am um, and I do. Uh, Lab Muffin Beauty Science is, is one of her Instagram page. She delves into this. My friend Olena Belay um, delves into this on Instagram. Um, there are skin products that aren't necessarily healthy because they're not natural to your mm-hmm. skin, but the level of danger that a lot of them have is minimal to none. Okay. Um, but they can provide better, um, I guess, expertise to, to guide people in the right direction towards skincare products and cosmetics than I will ever be able to.
0: I follow you. Um, you're not going to give us makeup tips today. I
1: understand. I wish I knew. Trust me.
0: It's okay. I'd look
1: a lot more beautiful on this Zoom meeting. I think you look great. Thank you. Appreciate you look it. You see my crazy ass cat in the background? Yeah.
0: It's it's, it's kind of like a screensaver. Yeah, nice. That's good. Um, Okay, so here's here's the question about you and the way that you interpret all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. One of the things for me that was really hard when I was first starting to develop an Instagram personality, if you will, not that it's different than my regular personality, but a communication style, was I find that people who oversimplify complex things End up doing more damage for people than they do good, and I also find that people who wait for the science to validate the innovation, who throw stones at the innovation, would would stunt all productivity that we could ever have. Do you follow me?
1: So you, I understand the first perspective very well,
0: but I, I I'll give understand you a, the, yeah. So so the second one is. I have a way of simplifying things without tying them to something specific. So an example would be, I made a post many times because I loved to agitate with it, that would say, if you can do 20 step-ups with your left leg with a given weight at a given height, and only two with your right leg with the same weight at the same height, you are more likely to develop problems than somebody who can do 20 with both. And I didn't have any empirical, double-blind, placebo-tested, you know, there, there was no research to that claim. It was a hypothesis that if you're walking around with 10x the stamina on one leg to the other, there's a high likelihood you're going to use one leg more than the other when you do bilateral things. And so, therefore, Absolutely. train unilaterally. I would have the, the troll, like, the, the high-minded the high science people come at me and say, well, where's your study for that? And I would ask, do you take a shower in the morning? And they would say, yes. I'd say, why? they say, because of hygiene. I'd say, did you study your water? No. Well, then shut the fuck up. Right? <laughs> We'd have, That was the conversation that we would have. But on the other side of it, I understand the damage that can be done when someone says, having low back pain, do this exercise. Well, that exercise might actually cause things to go way worse. And so I'm curious, when you're looking at stuff online, And you're looking Mm -hmm. at how people are putting stuff out. How are you making decisions about this is responsible, even if it's oversimplified as compared to this is potentially damaging.
1: That's always something that's, you know, I'm sure you find that this is challenging from your own perspective as well. It's really hard to find that balance, but typically you know, like you said, those oversimplifications, whether it's like from a supplement perspective or a nutrition perspective, um, it's hard to really determine exactly what I'm going to go after. Um, and I try, at least nowadays, I try not to focus on what other people are doing. I try and just educate from my own perspective. So like I can look at very popular pages that make a very, very broad oversimplification Um sometimes these oversimplifications can be absolutely useless as well. Mm-hmm. Or somebody can say it in the same way over and over again um, and get a lot of, I guess, Instagram clout for it. But um, like I said, I, I've really just tried to focus on my own things that I can control and, and try not to worry too much about, um, you know, what other people are doing. Um, sometimes I will, however, take those oversimplifications and think how can I make this better? Mm-hmm. And that's actually produce a lot of my content. It's like, you know, I'm trying to think of an example without, you know, naming names and it's kind of tough. Um, autophagy as an example. Um, do you, are you familiar with the term? Let's, let's get an education. Autophagy is the process where at a molecular level or at a cellular level, cells will, um, let's say that they're not healthy or they're, um, they can't maintain their metabolism. Well, they can break down certain components and recycle them and give them to the environment around the cells to help fuel Mm -hmm. other cells as opposed to like not wasting those resources on maintaining themselves. So they commit themselves to dying and give resources to the, the environment around them. Um, a lot of people will go online and make statements like, Oh, if I do this particular diet fasting approach, I'll induce autophagy and Um, autophagy has been associated with, um, reducing this specific type of cancer. So then the cancer patient will go and be like, okay, I need to try this particular fasting approach, Hmm. which actually could worsen the progression of their disease. Because a lot of times, depending on the progression of a cancer or a cancer patient's cancer, um, they need specific nutrients. A lot of times it's, it's, you know, high amounts of protein if they're losing muscle or even just exercising in general. So they'll try this dieting approach. And the next thing you know, they'll go to their oncologist and their oncologist will say, either you're losing weight, you're not healthy enough, I can't give you this chemotherapeutic because you're kind of malnourished. Um, And so it delays treatment. So that's where something like an oversimplification can really damage a person's perspective and potentially make things a lot worse in the context of a a cancer patient's treatment plan. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: So even something like trying to oversimplify something like autophagy, which is actually intrinsically very complicated from a cell perspective, saying that we need to do all of these fasting strategies or diet strategies to induce autophagy is absurd to apply to large populations without understanding the reason why somebody would do so.
0: Yeah. I follow you. What what it, what it ends up doing, for me at least, is, I remember being the doctor who patients were coming to see for musculoskeletal stuff. And they would come in and they would have a list of, what about this exercise? What about this exercise? What about this exercise? And, I understood why. You know, it's, it's they're trying to be responsible for themselves and, and, and provide support to the conversation. And I never took it as a slight. I did take it as an adjutant for me because I needed to educate about why all of those things were appropriate for somebody, but not them or appropriate for them, but not at this time. And, and it just, it's hard, you know, because not every doctor is going to do a good job. And so it is useful for people to be able to go out there and see all of this stuff. Like I know, or knew at least before we were educating coaches, we were on to something when coaches were giving me a hard time about their clients coming in and saying, my coach said if I can't touch the floor, I need to be careful when I deadlift. Or my client said this, and they got it from you. What the fuck? And I'm like, well, does it not make sense? If they can't physically reach where the bar would be without contorting their body, that maybe they shouldn't
1: load that position.
0: Right. Um, So I get it. It's just such a delicate balance out there.
1: Yeah, I mean, and again, that's something that I try and, and display to people that things aren't binary. There's a certain level of context that people need to understand to make more impactful choices about, mm-hmm. you know, things they do regarding their health. Yeah, about
0: three years ago, I think it was. Now, I had Kelly Gore's on the podcast. I don't know if you know who Kelly Gore's is or not. She. I don't recall. You'll 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 uh, you'll have some thoughts. She made the documentary cure or heal heal, yep. heal 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 documentary and on the documentary she had a wide array of scientists doctors lunatics all talking about different ways to heal and and largely they were talking about cancer right so on her in her movie were everything from people who work at like pfizer and i could be wrong about that specifically but you understand the premise to the medical medium they Mm. were all on this thing and one of the through lines that i actually like when i watch something like that i don't throw everything out and i don't accept everything as real but i look for through lines and one of the through lines that i did see was that a lot of the people on there were talking about the mindset of the patient when they have cancer right so do you believe you're going to get better can you picture your cancer cells getting smaller? All of those kinds of things, when combined with proper treatment, can reduce the likelihood of cancer or cancer severity. Do you have any evidence to believe that that's true?
1: So realistically, and, and I've sent you an article on this, um, yep. which kind of just makes this point too, is realistically there's, there's no evidence to suggest that a mindset will help reduce the likelihood or development of a person's cancer. But I think that psychologically, it's very important for people that do have cancer, they should understand enough about their disease to be able to make choices, right? So at the end of the day, you know, words are important, but realistically, it always comes down to actions. And so, I can will my cancer to go away, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go away. I need to do certain things to enable myself to be able to be in a position where I can effectively get my disease treated.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And so that's something that I try and do on my channel to empower people. And I think a lot of that can be done by just trying to keep things as simple as possible while displaying the complexity that goes into these, that even if, and it's a big if, And it's something that happens often, even if, you know, I go into my, my treatment with a a good mindset and I have a good support group uh, of people around me because support group is also important psychologically, even if my treatment doesn't work, I will have understood why it didn't work. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so it can help someone cope throughout the progression of their disease. So they'll understand that it's not just a binary thing. It didn't work. Because I didn't do that fasting approach that the medical medium said. It didn't work because I didn't drink that celery juice. It didn't work because I didn't do autophagy. You know, a lot of the time it comes down to certain excuses that people come, you know, come up with after listening to these documentaries. But I think the important thing is applying mindset with the intent to be action. See, that's that was I don't mean to to,
0: to validate myself through your opinion. The way that I felt about mindset was you're not going to meditate your tumor away. But if you have the mindset that there are things I can control, and (laughs) if I do all of those things, I increase the likelihood of beating this, then what happens is you do end up going to bed at a reasonable time and sleeping. You do end up laying off of alcohol because you do see the benefit of not doing it. You do clean up the processed foods in your diet to make sure that you're putting the most nutritious stuff you possibly can Not that the processed stuff causes cancer, that the nutritious stuff benefits muscle and organ tissue better than the processed stuff does. That's, that's what I'm describing there. Um, You you do socialize. You, you do all of the things because your mindset is such that I can beat this. And if I want to give myself the best chance, I need to do all of these things. And so that's what I believe leads to mindset leading to a higher likelihood of, of remission and, and and full cure eventually
1: yeah and i and i would agree with you as well i think there's something to be said about you know high levels of stress impacting a person's judgment that's common sense mm-hmm. if, if something like meditation helps a cancer patient or even people who aren't sick you know uh, uh you know live a particular lifestyle that they can enjoy and be healthy in then they should do that, you know, because it is going to reduce the risks of developing diseases like cancer or heart disease, diabetes, obesity, all these diseases. You know, there's there's a lot of genetic components about disease, but you can't often control those, right? So you have to control the things that you're you're capable of controlling. Mm-hmm. I think people need to realize that. And, and one of those ways is by reducing the amount of stress that we go through, psychological stress, I mean, um, and that's going to you know give us better quality sleep because we're not stressing out like crazy. And of course, the de-stressing mechanisms that people utilize throughout their life to reduce their stress levels are going to vary. Depends on what people are capable of doing too. So I think, you know, as from a from a treatment perspective, we have to understand that as well.
0: Do you think while that-
1: there's no research to to support mindset being a strong component of reducing cancer risks? I think that I think that it does. And if research were to come out to support it, it would show with a strong degree of certainty that, you know, a good support system, mindfulness, those sorts of things would help to put somebody in a better state of mind when they're, you know, going to chemotherapy or, you know, doing certain behaviors associated with getting treatment.
0: Well, I think, I think there are some things that we're not going to be able to measure in a way that we can be satisfied with the outcome being uh, complete, you know, like, like, If, if you're, if, if you go into the doctor's office and you shit on everybody in there, does that make you less likely to get well? Probably not in a measurable way, but if you do it over the course of years, probably, you know, they, yeah. they, they're just, there's just less incentive to help you. Yeah. But, but can we measure that? Probably not. You know, and, and that's, I think that speaks to what you were describing. I let the few things out. Go ahead.
1: You know, I, I think that a lot of this also speaks to your business model too, because if I'm understanding correctly, you also try and enable certain business owners to provide an appropriate environment for their uh-huh. you know, chosen demographic. Yes. And I think a lot of this comes from understanding the the mindset of the people that they, that they're intending to help. Uh-huh. For so sure. I think, you know, the same, the same premise should be from, you know, whether I'm somebody who's sick expecting to get treatment or whether I'm a doctor expecting to treat somebody else, I should apply those same um, mindsets to to help people in my particular environment. And that's going to vary from place to place.
0: Mm-hmm. I left a few things off of my uh, my rapid swings there, and people yep. people will kill me for it. Cell phones. Cell phones. Are they give Do cancer? they cause
1: cancer? Yeah. No.
0: Okay. Uh, what about like shift work? So I, you know, people who work nights
1: shift work has relatively higher likelihood. Why is that? Um, My wife, the circadian biologist, um, would tell you that shift work can, it it basically messes with human physiology in such a way where it increases our likelihood for pretty much all diseases um, by messing with essentially our metabolism of, The things we eat um humans you know we were supposed to physiologically we'll wake up in the day we go to sleep at night we're diurnal animals Mm -hmm. Um, not nocturnal right so those specific light cues uh nutrition cues all of those things need to happen within a certain time frame during the day to be in accordance with how we've evolved over time as humans and so if we go against that by working chronically, again, keyword chronically, under the night shift, like hospital workers, police officers, a variety of different professions, firefighters, I could keep going, Mm -hmm. um, McDonald's workers, all these things, (laughs) um, they increase their likelihoods for offsetting those mechanisms that maintain our normal human metabolism. Mm -hmm. And so if you go under chronic periods of time, not following your physiology, you increase your likelihood for pretty much all diseases. So shift work, strong likelihood of not only predisposing you for cancer, but you're more likely, I think, to get something like diabetes or obesity before that.
0: Interesting. Joe, you've been a really gracious guest answering all of my questions with, with really good, dense, thorough answers. Is there anything that I did not ask you that you think would be valuable for the audience to know? And of course the answer is, yeah, if there's a million things the audience should know. But yeah, anything- there's a million things to talk about.
1: <laughs> but I think um one thing that I also tell my audience is that it's important, you know, to control what you can. I've mentioned controlling the controllables, but I think it's also important, you know, like I said, quality sleep we just spoke about in terms of, you know, maintaining healthy human outcomes. Um, but also exercise is very important. So mm-hmm. one thing that I often try and tell you know the cancer patients that follow me as well and and even just regular healthy quote unquote people um we have to all find consistent exercise that we can do over the long term without you know injuring ourselves but it has to be something we enjoy Mm -hmm. um and you know these these exercise plans have also or are also being shown to help cancer patient outcomes as well so i think that you know, one of my other goals on my page is to try and promote as many people as, as I possibly can to just exercise even a little bit more. Instead of sitting down all day at your desk, stand up a little bit, walk around, do something. It's always mm-hmm. better than nothing.
0: Love it. Joe, where can people find you?
1: On Instagram. And I now have a Threads account.
0: Ooh.
1: So that's helpful. It's basically Twitter. Um, I don't have a Twitter because I got banned on Twitter for reasons I can't understand. Nice. Congratulations. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was a long time ago. I I literally, I do what I do on threads, what I did on Twitter, um, which is share scientific articles and PM IDs. So back in the day, Twitter didn't like that. So (laughs) now I'm able to do that again. So now I have a threads account.
0: You could probably get back on Twitter too if you wanted now.
1: I can't, so I was permanently banned. I Mm. literally, you can't make a new account because they they banned my IP address and um, I guess they have a way of tracking my location
0: that's impressive.
1: Yeah, it is impressive. I'll send a letter to
0: Musk. We need yeah. Joe Dell on Twitter.
1: I, I don't care enough. Yeah. <laughs> to be Joe, a part of that show, no offense. No,
0: no, none taken. I don't own it. Thank you for coming on the show. Much appreciated. Thank you
1: again for having me. I really appreciate it. And it's been an, an honor to uh, to be here.
0: You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Active Live podcast. Please remember, give us a hand, rate it, review it, wherever you listen to shows. We are on a mission to humanize the healthcare industry by professionalizing the fitness industry to empower the individual to live a life unlimited by the way that their body looks, feels, or performs. If you are inspired by that mission and want to jump on the wagon, find us anywhere. Active Life Professional on Instagram. Active Life Rx on Instagram. Come to me personally at Dr. Sean Pestuge. We want to welcome you onto the train. We want you to be a part of the mission. We want to offer you the opportunity to pursue this right alongside us. We're inspired by your effort, and we hope to help you in your journey. Turn back.